Hello, everyone, and welcome to another new perspective, the podcast that brings you wisdoms and perspectives from all walks of life. Well, welcome, everybody. We're back for another session of another new perspective. And this morning we have Jason. He works for an attorney here in Raleigh, and he works in wills and trusts. And we're going to go into some conversation that for most tends to be a little uncomfortable. And it's one of my favorite topics, which is if you really focus on death a little bit and that it's in your rearview mirror, that you tend to be live feeling a little more alive. So we're going to go into some of the questions that you might feel uncomfortable trying to seek out. Um, I've ran into this with parents that have young children that do not have wills for them yet, or not really for the children, but for their for uh, themselves in regards to where the kids would go if something would happen. And it's a really tough thing to think about. So um, I welcome Jason, and good morning to you. Thank you, Joe. Good morning. Glad to be here. So I guess... Um, Give me a little bit of insight, like how long have you been an attorney, um, the organization you work at, and then at the end, um, you can, Jason will give us the information where you can find him um, if you are looking for some more answers, consultation, or um, someone to work with in regards to a will or a trust. So, Yeah, so I started practicing law in 2013, so I've been at it about six years now. I did not start off in this area, started off as more of a general practice attorney, working in a lot of different areas and just sort of naturally have gravitated towards wills, trusts, estates, um, initially just because I was fascinated with it intellectually. I like the challenge, the problem-solving aspect. That's sort of what drew me in, and I guess I wasn't thinking too far ahead because the more emotional aspect that you find with a lot of clients, either working with someone where a family member has just died or they're contemplating their own estate plan, what happens if I die, um, that really didn't hit me until later, um, and especially the last three years or so when I focused on doing this exclusively. Um, it's not something I was anticipating, but I found that it, it gives you a good mix as far as dealing with the intellectual challenge of putting together a plan or helping someone problem solve, but also acting really as more of an advisor in more than just strictly a legal sense. You're really helping people walk through this subject that they're very uncomfortable talking about, especially when it comes to their own estate plan. No one likes to think about what happens if I'm not here. And then really the more emotional side is usually if it's someone close to them that's either passed away or they're in failing health and they're trying to figure out what to do. Um, so you kind of get to act as that counselor and that advisor. Um, but what drew me to it from, from the very beginning was this, that problem-solving aspect of how do you help people in this situation and make a good decision. And so that's... That's really what I enjoy about working in this area. Okay. And, and it's interesting you brought it up that way because I actually go to this, um, it's an organization called Death Cafe, and it's held here. There's one in Raleigh and one in Mebane, so if anybody's interested. Um, it's an international organization that's focused on the normalization of the discussion of death and dying, and it's a great organization. Um, and the one thing I've learned about it is that there's a growing field of death doulas where they are that guide to help people through some of the process of working towards the end of life and then you know helping with the funeral stuff and all that and moving into that. So I think that, that gives you a little bit of that, that feeling, right, of, of gui that guidance plus the intellectual piece of it. Yeah, and the guidance is really interesting because you have to see a lot of different examples um, of how people react to talking about this subject. Some people will default into a very matter-of-fact They'll try and strip all the emotion out of it. You know, 
here's what I have, here's who should get it, here's who's in charge, and they'll, they'll intentionally try to not think too emotionally about it. Some people are on the opposite side of the spectrum where even just talking about the subject, you can see them start to get nervous, their hands start to shake a little bit, they don't want to answer questions directly um, because they really just don't like thinking about this area. And then you see people all along that spectrum. And so it really is interesting the more you work in this area, you learn how to work with all these different types of people because everyone's approaching the subject matter from their own perspective and their own life experience. And you have to know how to work with a lot of different types of people, um, some of whom are very ready to talk about it and some of whom would rather talk about absolutely anything else. So. Right. There's actually, a, I have a good friend of mine, um, she was telling me, you know, her whole life growing up, death was just like one of those conversations you have about like finances or learning how to tie your shoes or whatever. It was like, here's just a part of this whole thing. And she always talks about this. Her mom actually went to make sure she didn't have to leave her with any sort of burden. She actually has what she calls a death binder. Mm -hmm. And everything's picked out. Like all the wills and everything's set up, like tombstone, like the whole the whole deal, like everything she needs. She goes, you know, they're getting ready to go on a vacation. She's like, well, I'm going to make sure my good friend has my death binder, you know, and told her where to find it and everything like that just in case something happened. So that way everything is already organized and ready to go. So there's not you're not leaving somebody with that, you know, when you're gone. Because we talk about that a lot with um, why would you want to already – leave and now you've you know your family are emotionally traumatized by the situation or spiritually traumatized and then why would you want to leave them this burden this financial burden of you know I didn't plan anything I don't know where anything's going and then everything goes into probate and uh, maybe you can answer since we meant I just mentioned probate maybe kind of go into that first in regards to you know how that works in regards to maybe not having a will as to having a will yeah and that's something I talk to clients about is if they're hesitant on either putting a plan together or putting a lot of thought and so effort into putting this plan together, is I try to get them to realize that this process is going to happen with or without your input. And probably the worst thing you can do is to leave no instructions, no guidance, and everyone has to figure it out after the fact. Um, one, what they think you would have wanted when it comes to like you know burial wishes, um, disposition of your remains, that kind of thing. Um, but also, there's a default system in place in North Carolina. If you pass away without a will, there's a law in the books that says who gets what. And it may not be the same division of property that you would want if you could choose who gets to benefit from your assets after your death. Um, one thing that a lot of clients don't really think about their will is sometimes the best thing the will can do, from my perspective as an attorney, is it really tells me who's in charge. Just that simple thing of saying, this is my executor, instead of all the other family members that could potentially apply or ask for or want to be involved in the process and have some authority, um, your choice of this is the person that I trust, that I think would do a good job, it just eliminates a lot of the back and forth um, of just doing the very simple administrative parts of an estate to know this is the one person that I can talk to that has the authority to make decisions and do things on behalf of the estate. And that's before we even get to all the other options and all the other things you can do in your will. Um, but the probate process, really the best way to think about it is it's the only way to get property from your name into someone else's name if you don't already have a joint owner or a beneficiary designation on the property. 
So for example, if you own a house together with someone else and they're on the deed with you and it says on the deed, joint with right of survivorship, well, you don't necessarily need probate to make that transfer happen. It's already built into the property. Same thing with a life insurance policy or a retirement account. If it's already got a listed beneficiary, you don't need the probate process to make that transfer. You've already taken care of it during your lifetime. It's already set up. It's sort of preset. Um, other assets like a car, um, a bank account that doesn't have anyone's name on it, there's no way to get that from your name to someone else's name without the probate process. You need the, the court system basically to authorize that legal transfer. And that's the basis that probate grows out of. It's all a question of who has the authority to act for you after you're after you've already passed away, and then who has the ability to transfer this property that you've owned, something's in your name, how do we put it in someone else's name? And the answer to that is probate. Okay. Um, the one thing you said a little bit ago in regards to um, remains, mm-hmm. and um, I guess is that more along the lines of like a medical, like a power of attorney? Because like the will, I think I've talked to you once before about it, where the will would be passed when you'd have to know what the person's um, desires were as far as cremation or anything like that. Yeah, the, the only way the will comes into that is there are certain default rules that you may want to get around about how much your estate is allowed to spend on your funeral. Um, until you pay off all your other debts, currently North Carolina only authorizes, I believe it's up to $3,500 to be reimbursed for whoever paid for your funeral. Um, and then you have to go through and make sure all your other debts are paid off first. So you've got potential health care debts, credit card debts, whatever you might have when you pass away. Um, your will can specifically say, I authorize my executor to spend more than that. But that's more on a sort of a technical financial side. Uh, but you're right, the health care power of attorney, which is something that not a lot of people think about when they think about an estate plan, um, that really does give you the ability to say, what are my wishes as far as burial versus cremation, um, who's entitled to participate in the disposition of my remains, you know, if I'm going to have be cremated, do my ashes go to my kids equally, to my wife? Do I want them scattered in a certain way? That's really not something that you're going to be able to effectuate through your will. That's really going to be your health care power of attorney um, because that health care power of attorney that you designate is someone who can legally make those decisions for you. They can sign contracts with a funeral home or a cremation society, and they can actually make your wishes um, into a reality by legally enforcing them. And without a healthcare power of attorney, you're relying on this somewhat vague term of next of kin. Who okay. gets to, who gets to make decisions for you? Well, you're next of kin. Who's that? Sometimes it's whoever steps forward and says, "Hey, I'm I'm the daughter. I'm the son." And unless someone's there to fight them on it, they're going to pretty much let them do what they want to do. Whether it's the hospital, um, the cremation society, whoever. If they're not hearing from anyone else, they're going to listen to who's on hand. Uh, whereas the healthcare power of attorney not only allows you to designate who's acting for you, but what restrictions they have to abide by. And a lot of times when people think of a state plan, they just think of the will. Um, but really, the healthcare power of attorney is a great document because not only can it help you set out some of these um, funeral arrangements, um, disposition of remains decisions, it's a document that can actually help you during your lifetime. So if you're in a traumatic accident, and you're out of commission for either a short period of time or a long period of time, this healthcare power of attorney lets you designate who's in charge of your healthcare while you're out of commission. 
Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, since you mentioned the financial aspects of it, I guess let's let's kind of go into like what are some of the average costs and how is the cost um, associated to a will? You know, is there like is it based on someone's? Um, um, I know a lot of legal stuff is based on how much work has gone into it or how long the process is or how many aspects and variations there are to it. So is that pretty much the same thing with this? It's pretty much. From my point of view, the main thing that controls the cost of an estate plan is how much trust planning you're doing. So if you think of a simple will that just names your executor, your beneficiaries, and perhaps a, nominates a guardian for minor children, if you still have minor kids living at home and you want to be sure you have a say in who potentially is looking after them if something happens to you. That's going to be a pretty straightforward document. There may be some variables based on how many beneficiaries you have, if you're getting very detailed about what you're leaving them and under what conditions. Um, but really with a simple will, there's not a lot you really can do there to increase the cost and complexity. And as an attorney, it's not going to take me that long to draft it. So you're looking at a pretty standard flat fee to put that together. Where you get into more variability with the cost is if you start thinking about trusts. Okay. And a trust is a legal entity that is going to last longer than your estate. So if you say, I want to leave all my property to my kids, but they can't have it until they're 30. Well, if something happens to you before they hit 30, then you're going to nominate someone called the trustee to look over that property for them until they reach that age. And you're going to tell them, what are the rules they have to abide by when spending that money, saving it, investing it, everything like that. And that's when you get into um, costs higher than a will, and how much higher depends on how complex your trust plan is. Is it just hold it for my kids until they're 30? Is it a separate trust for each kid? Is it a separate trust for each kid, but then a joint trust for the vacation home? Because I want them to share that for a certain amount of time. Um, and I usually do all that on a flat fee also, but again, it's just like you said, it's based on how much time I know that's going to take. I try to avoid anything hourly in estate planning because clients are already hesitant about doing the estate plan in the first place. And so being uncertain about their bill, I find just turns even more people off to it. Versus sure, yeah. if you come into the first meeting and we talk about it and we say, okay, based on what you want me to do, here's exactly how much it's going to be. It tells them right away, okay, I know this is how much it's going to cost. It's not going to cost me any more than that. And it's kind of one less thing they have to worry about. It's like, all right, here's the cost. I'm comfortable with it or I'm not. But most people, once you've gone through all the reasons to have the plan, all the benefits they're going to get out of it, and you also give them a choice. I mean, no one has to set up a complicated trust in their will if they don't want to. You just tell them, here's the benefits of having it. Here's the downside of not having it. And it's up to you. You decide how much planning you want to have. But for the basics, the simple will, the powers of attorney, um, sort of the cornerstone documents that I talk to clients about, it's usually not a huge hurdle that most people can't overcome. It's only when you start getting to more complicated trust planning um, that you start to see the prices go up to where some people will be hesitant about putting it together. So without throwing an actual price out there, because I don't expect you to do that, but like, are you talking like, you know, this base rate being under $1,000 to oh, do yeah. a will? Okay. Yeah, so the basics for an individual, so if a single person who wants just a simple will, the healthcare power of attorney, the durable power of attorney, you're looking at a ballpark of somewhere in the $500 range. Okay. And if you start talking about trust planning, that's when you get up closer to the $1,000 mark. Every attorney you go to will be different. 
Um, some of them will have higher rates. Some of them have more of a form that they use so they can spend less time and give you a lower rate. And everyone just has to find the arrangement that's right for them. Some people don't want all the complex planning. They want it as straightforward as possible. They want it very simple. They want a short, readable document. Um, and so for them, uh, a more form-like document that just puts together the basics is perfect. Some people want to specify every detail out for the next 20 years. They're not going to be very good with a form document. Hmm. Um, but that's basically what you're looking at. The more time the attorney has to spend customizing the plan to you, you should expect a higher bill, a higher rate for doing that. Okay. Yeah, I can see where the fire would help because the the anxiety of doing this anyways and that fear of like, um, I was for like the ego is like, you know, afraid of dying, you know, and now you're all of a sudden you're like, now you're talking about having to actually like plan your death or plan what could happen when you leave. And then now all of a sudden you're like, well, you know, I know you're uncomfortable doing this and I'm going to like throw in, we don't know how much time it's going to take and we don't know how much money it's going to be. Then all of a sudden it just culminates and it turns into this like pretty uncomfortable situation anyways. Yeah. And I tell so. clients that when they're looking at doing estate planning, I always remind them that as an attorney, I do my estate planning on a flat fee basis for 90% of the cases I handle. 100% um, of the probate cases I handle, I do hourly because I cannot accurately predict how much time it's going to take you to go through the probate process. Oh, I can see that. It could be very simple where there's one executor, one beneficiary, you left everything to one person. They can get through that thing pretty quickly. The more people you introduce into the process, more kids, surviving spouses, kids from previous marriages, the number of variables makes it so that I can't tell you if this is going to be a six-month process or a two-year process. And I can tell you that the more thought you've put into it ahead of time, the better it's going to be for the people who come after you. Because um, like we said before, this process is going to play out, and you can have a big impact on how well it plays out, how efficiently it plays out, and how many hurt feelings you can avoid by making it very clear what you want, and in some cases, even why. There are some things that I will advise clients to put into their will or to their other documents that are not strictly legal provisions. They're more of explanatory provisions, like in recognition of my daughter having spent the last five years taking care of me, I'm giving her 60% of my estate instead of 50%. Okay. Whereas if you just say 60-40, someone might look at that and say, well, why is she the favorite daughter? Right, Versus giving them some input of this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. Um, sometimes you can avoid some hurt feelings and some misunderstandings just by being very clear about this is what I want. Yeah, I can totally see that. Um, one of them, I've actually um, found this in numerous people. And uh, my friend that I was saying about her mom has the, the death finder. Her and I talk about it because she had a friend that was the same way where their younger parents and they have children that are three, four, or five years old and don't have a will that says where their children would go if something would happen to them. And I don't know how, how often you see that or if that's something that um, maybe gives some insight on the importance of that and how soon that should happen. Parents who have children in the home under 18 probably get the most value out of a simple will and they are unlikely to have it, at least judging by the survey data that we see for people across the society in the U.S. that have wills. The general figure is just less than half of people have a will. 
But if you look at people who have children under the age of 18, it's lower than that. It's, oh, wow. it's like in the 30s, like 35, 36%. And the main reason these people really need the will the most is because they have the most variables going on in their life at one time. They probably have assets they're changing a lot. A lot of times they've just bought their first home. They're just starting to save in retirement accounts. They're trying to save in 529 accounts for their kids. They have older family members that they may be supporting in years to come. They have young kids now that they have to support. They probably still have a very active circle of people around them, family, friends. There's a lot of moving parts for these people. And understandably, it can be hard for them to dedicate the time and the effort to say, let me go in and spend a few hours talking with someone to talk about a will, review the drafts, make time to go in and sign it. Um, but those are the people who really can gain, I think, the greatest benefit from having a good plan in place because there are so many things that if something were to happen to them, a lot of decisions need to be made in a short period of time. And getting the planning done ahead of time, one, I think it can help them relax a little bit because then instead of worrying at night, you know, what if something happens to me? Um, how will my family be supported? Who's going to take care of the kids? At least they know that decision's already been made. I feel comfortable with it, and I can take that off my worry list, at least for, at least for that area of their life. Yeah, that's how I would see it. Like you can, like, you already know what you know, you're you're prepared for the potential of something happening. Mm-hmm. You never want to like say like, oh, this could happen, and like you know, because you're just creating another worry in itself. So now you have the worry of not having it done, the worry of like something could happen to me. But like when I talk about fall planning all the time, I, when I, I very specifically use terminology when I talk to elderly people, it's like if you're preparing for the potential, mm-hmm. right? You're preparing for the potential of this happening. I don't want to say you're going to fall. I'm not going to say you're going to die, but I mean, we are going to die. All of us are. Um, but preparing for that potential takes a lot of that anxiety away because you have this thing already in place going, okay, so if anything happens, you know, and maybe... Like what what's a good suggestion as far as like I know there's a lot of moving pieces. Is it suggestible to uh, to reevaluate things yearly or not necessarily yearly? Although it's not a bad idea to at least take your documents out every year. Um, some people do this around the holidays. I don't know that that's the best time, but I guess it's a date on the calendar that you'll remember. And at least read through what you've got in your will and some of your other documents. And as long as you read through it and it still makes sense to you, then great, leave it alone. You don't have to do anything with it. Um, But one year, or if you do it every two years, however often you do it, if at any point you read through those documents and you think, actually, that's not what I would want to happen, then you go in and talk to an attorney, get some advice on what's changed in my life, what would I like to update, what's the best way to do that. Um, but yeah, the yearly review is not a bad idea, even if it's just something that you and your spouse or your family members, just whoever you want to be involved in the process, just literally read through it, make sure you're familiar with who did you name as executor, who gets what and under what conditions, who's my healthcare POA if something happens to me. And it's a very quick process just to read through that and just think, are those still the decisions I'm comfortable with? And if it's yes, great put them back in the drawer or the filing cabinet or the safe deposit box and come back next year. Um, The main thing I would say at that yearly reading is 
make sure you think about would someone other than me know how to find these documents? That's very something true. Because yeah. people often ask me, where should I keep my estate planning documents? Should I keep them in a safe? Should I keep them in a fireproof cabinet? Should I keep them in a safe deposit box at the bank? And really the answer is anywhere that someone other than you knows about it and has reasonable access to it. So not that someone can come into your house at a moment's notice and just grab your will, but in a reasonable period of time, someone would know, okay, if they had a will, it would be one of, in one of these two places or three places, and within 24 or 48 hours, I could have access to that. Okay. That makes sense, because I think, um, you know, we try to be secretive or, like, keep stuff in a safe mm -hmm. place, and, like, you can be, make it too safe to where now nobody else can find it, and then... Yeah, and another question I get is, should I tell my kids what's in my will? Oh, yeah, that's and a especially great especially if there's anything other than an equal distribution, or sometimes even if it's equal, and they think, well, why are the, one kid's going to be jealous because, you know, you treated my brother the same as me. I'm, I'm way better than him. Mm -hmm. I, I treat you guys much better. I spend more time with you, but you included him, you know, as if he was an equal, you know. There could be some hurt feelings down the line. The answer to that is not necessarily unless one of your kids is also acting as your executor. Basically, anyone who might have an active role in your estate plan, whether as executor, as trustee, as a power of attorney, that person should, one, know that they've been named. So if you've named someone your executor, it shouldn't be a surprise to them when someone opens up the will and they find out they're the executor. You want to tell them ahead of time. And second, you want to have a conversation with that person about why you've named them and what your expectations are. So some people will name their kids jointly as executor. And the reason they're doing that is because they want them to have to consult on everything. They want them to be in agreement with any decision that gets made. It would be important to tell your kids that. The reason I've named you both is because I expect you to work together and not to do anything unless both of you agree on it. If you've just named one of them, you might want to tell them it's because you live closer. It's because, you know, I trust you to handle a checkbook more. I expect you to treat everyone fairly, and that's why I've named you, because I think you're going to do that. That's that explanation piece. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, yeah exactly, the explanation piece. But it's especially important for anyone that you're going to be relying on to actually take up this job that you're leaving for them. And that's something that a lot of people don't think about, is that being an executor for someone else, it is a job. And you're allowed, by law, to take a commission. You're allowed to get paid by the estate for doing it. Oh, wow, okay. Most of the time, if you're also a beneficiary of the estate, you don't take the commission because why would you take money out of your own pocket just to pay yourself? And any commission you take from the estate is actually taxable income. So not many people are going to take a commission just to pay taxes on it if they were getting it anyway. That makes sense. But if it's something good to think about, if you're naming your brother or your uncle or your niece who isn't getting anything else out of the estate, their incentive might be to take a commission. And that's something good to talk to them about ahead of time is hey, I want to name you as executor because I think you'll be impartial. Um, are you going to expect to be compensated for that? And just realize that you're giving them a job to do, and especially if there's any disagreement or pushback at all from your kids or your other beneficiaries, their job just got a lot harder. Oh, absolutely. You know, because you have to, um, you know, having the joint executive or executor would be, you know, challenging enough to make sure, like, you know, in that hard situation of that actually happening, can you still get along or is one going to handle the situation better than the other one mm -hmm. um, as to like having one person. But then if you have just one person, then, you know, is I can see where the family could get, you know, hurt feelings about it or, 
um, where that person wasn't, why did they, why do they trust you or any of those situations like that? Mm-hmm. And that's where talking about it ahead of time with the family really does help you avoid some of those situations because again, you're removing uncertainty because when people don't know, don't know the answer to something, they'll make up their own answer. And so if you don't tell them why you picked one child over the other to be executor, they'll start assuming things in their own mind. Well, it must be because you love them more or just because you don't trust me. Where it very well may have been that they thought that one child was too busy and had too much going on in their life and they didn't want to burden them with being the executor on top of everything else. Right, especially if probate can last two years. I mean, yeah. that's like... But the main thing is if you don't tell them why, they're going to make up their own reason. And so, again, the same thing as what we talked about earlier with probate. This process is going to play out. You might as well have some input into it. The same thing's going to play out amongst your beneficiaries. They're going to talk about why you did what you did, and you can influence that by telling them either directly during your lifetime, this is why I'm doing it, or by explaining it very clearly in your will, I'm leaving this to you, I'm naming you executor, and you're free to state as many reasons for that as you want. I think um, in my my opinion of that situation, because there's so many times where people hear things in passing or they're not very present, they're always like their minds racing, they're busy, they got kids, they got all this stuff, and like maybe you sat with mom and had a conversation, you know, over coffee and she told you this. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, life happened or whatever, or like the kids were bothering you or whatever, and you kind of listened. Then all of a sudden it comes down time to it and you're like, Well, why did that happen? Like I don't remember her ever telling me this. You know, as to like, you know, that written written communication that's in the will and it's all set up and you're going, it no matter if you remember or not, it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. she can tell you, but then in, in the back end, it's also in the will to remind them. And it's also important because sometimes mom tells each kid something different. A lot of times, you know, if you're only meeting with one child or one family member individually and just having a conversation with them, there's no telling what you might tell them, you know, 10 years ago. She said, oh, I think you'd be a great executor. I know you'd do everything right. Oh, yeah. And then five years later, she talks to the other family member. It's like, oh, yeah, you're definitely going to be my executor. I, you know, I've thought about it, and I think you'd be the best person to do it. And then you go five years after that. The parents now passed away. Everyone has their own memories of what they said to them. Right. And if the document isn't clear about why you did what you did, everyone's going to bring those perceptions into the probate process with them. And that's how you take a six-month process and turn it into a two-year process. Oh, yeah, I can totally see that. And I think that's why I like that, um, you know, I like systems, I like data, and like, you know, precision of things. And I think having that explained in detail in on a document, mm-hmm. you know, because there is like the telephone game, right? We're like, that's not what I heard. That's not what they said, you know, and then like, or you know, the relationship changes or like the, the parents' cognition, cog- cognitive basis changes right where they're not like really all there anymore you know and to have you know I guess that's another you know little segue is that you know making sure that you know once they hit a certain age that they start losing some of that they, their their cognition is declining mm-hmm. right and making sure they're of sound mind to like um, fill out a will or to know exactly what they want yeah it's the most the two most challenging areas of my job Number one is dealing with family members when someone's just passed away, because a lot of times people will call me days after, you know, someone in the family has died, and usually I'm telling them, you know, you don't need to go probate the will today, you know, we can wait a few days, wait for the funeral to happen, nothing needs to happen right now. The second difficult situation is when you're dealing with a question of diminished capacity. When I have to go to a hospital or a nursing home 
and talk to someone who wants to change their will or they want to update who their power of attorney is, it becomes very important from my role as the attorney to document what is this person telling me, what have they responded to when I ask them questions about their family members, what they're doing, what they're changing, what they're overriding. Because these are the situations that are most likely to be challenged later, especially if it's anything other than an equal distribution to the kids. If it's anything other than 50-50 or a third, a third, a third, the fact that the will was changed later in life when they were in nursing care, when they were in the hospital, that is the number one way for a will to get challenged. Because the best way to challenge a will if you're trying to prove it's invalid is to try and prove the person didn't have the capacity to make that decision. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't realize who they were disinheriting, who they were choosing one over the other. And in those situations, as an attorney, I really have to document not only for the family, because you know this person making the will, it's in their interest to make sure their wishes are upheld if they do have the competency to make this decision, but also to protect me as the attorney drafting it. Um, because if there's ever a question about the will, the first witness at the trial is going to be the attorney. Okay, that makes sense. You drafted the document. What did you see when you met with them? Who was in the room? Who called you? Was it the person? Was it the kid? Was it the one who's now the executor over all the others? Um, but it's a very difficult area, and especially because it's not a bright line test. There's no way to go in and meet with someone unless they've got an extreme level of um, cognitive impairment where you can say with 100% certainty they definitely have competence to make a will, they definitely don't. You have to talk to them, you have to ask basically all the questions that would be asked in a hearing. If someone later was challenging the will, you have to kind of almost do that hearing in advance okay. and make sure that they can pass that test. And it's also not uncommon for you to meet with someone and if you meet with them on Monday, uh, Monday's not the day for them to make the will. They clearly are not in the right state of mind. They're not able to talk to you clearly about their family and who's getting what. And so you just have to drop it for that day. And you can try coming back on Wednesday or Friday. And I've had that situation before, meeting with someone in the hospital. And I know as soon as I walk in, we're not even going to talk about the will today. I'm not even going to put that on the table. I'm going to talk to them about their kids, how they're doing. And I'll come back later in the week. And oftentimes, if someone is having those good days and bad days, it's important for them to know and for their family to know that you can still make a will if you're having those ups and downs, but you have to prove that when you're making the will, you knew exactly what you were doing, exactly who you were benefiting, and probably most importantly, if you're leaving anyone out, you have to be very clear about what you're doing, and again, getting back to the why. Right. They have to be able to demonstrate to you not only what they want, but why. And that's probably the trickiest situation you run into on the planning side, because not only are you doing your normal job of taking their wishes and putting it into a legal document, you're doing this whole extra job of almost trying to play litigator in advance. Right, you're kind of navigating their, their feelings and their and how they actually, because I can see where like as someone got older, you know, they, they might make stories up in their mind or, you know, they're losing that, that um, ability to make decisions, their ability to, to think clearly where they're going, you know, this person was my, my executor, but now I don't trust them for some reason. And mm -hmm. that trust is fictitious. Like, you know, you just lost it because it's not real. You know, and then now that I can see where that would throw off some of that. You know. Yeah, and it's a tricky question because if they 
honestly want something. They know what they're doing. They know who they're appointing as executor. But you have a feeling that the reason they're making that decision is not based in reality. It can be tricky to say, does that mean they are competent to make a will or not? Because mainly the, the questions we ask when it comes to a will is, are you aware of who your natural heirs would be, so who your kids, wife, etc., are? Do you know what the will's doing? Do you know that it's leaving the property to these people? Um, do you know who you're naming as executor? And uh, the big one is, is anyone influencing you to make this decision? Like, are you making this decision because one of the kids has told you, oh, you know, none of your other kids want to see you, I'm the only one who cares for you? Um, are you being fed information by one person that's leading you to make a different decision? Or did you come to this conclusion all on your own? that based on what you've seen, this is what you want. Um, and the most important thing I can do is to document accurately what this person wanted and why. And as long as I've done that, hopefully I've avoided as many things as I can. In some situations, you're not going to avoid um, the challenge to the will. If you've got someone who's very unhappy, you can be very clear, you can have very good reasons, but if they want to you know, make trouble for the estate, they're going to do it. Right. And all you can do is just build the best case you can to protect the person's wishes and make sure that what they've put in place is going to be ultimately upheld no matter who challenges it. So if someone would have um, a power of attorney, mm -hmm. you know, the person that isn't quite able to make decisions anymore, can the power of attorney make decisions on that will against what they had already set in place? Generally not, but they can do a lot of other things that are in the estate planning area. Your power of attorney can't go back and sign the will for you. That's something that's personal to you. It's a personal power that you really can't delegate to anyone else. Okay. What your power of attorney can do, if they're allowed by the document to do this, is they can start making lifetime gifts of your property. And this is an area that a lot of people who are acting as power of attorney for their parents or for anyone... It's their, really their greatest, greatest risk of incurring some liability is they start making gifts of property because they think this somehow advances the person's intent. They think that the will is no longer an accurate reflection of what they want, but they can't change the will because they've lost capacity. And so they'll start making lifetime gifts of the property to do whatever they think the right thing is. And in some cases, the power of attorney document will give them that authority but you have to be very clear again to document why you're doing it. And if you're the person making this power of attorney and you're giving your kids or anyone else this ability to handle your property, you want to put some thought ahead of time into, do I want to even put this on, t on the table? Do I want them to be able to just write a check out of my account and give it to whoever they want to? Or do I want to make it so that they can only do that for these specific reasons or to take care of these specific goals? Um, but it's a great amount of responsibility that you're giving someone acting as your POA because you're giving them the ability to start trying to fix things after the fact. And in some cases, that's great. In some cases, you want someone who can move property around, who can help you when you're no longer able to take care of everything yourself. But again, you want to explain to them exactly what you expect, what is their role. Um, because you don't want them to have to try and figure that out for themselves later on. But the power of attorney is a great tool, especially if you're worried at all about 
being subject to a guardianship proceeding at any point. Kind of like how we talked about the probate process is legally how you get property from your name to someone else's name. Well, if you don't have a power of attorney in place, the only way to give someone the authority to act on your behalf is to go to court and have the court approve a legal guardian for you. If you've already got your power of attorney set up, you can avoid that, um, maybe not indefinitely, but for a long period of time because you already have a decision maker built in. And if you've given enough thought to what are the rules this decision maker has to abide by, they may be able to take care of everything you need them to take care of and you never have to go to court and incur that time, expense, um, more family dynamics being played out in public in the court system. Um, a good power of attorney that you've selected and thought about ahead of time can really save you and your family members a lot of time and trouble as you get more into that diminished capacity phase. Okay. So um, I just had this thought. So would would this cause some sort of like bumping of heads or controversy of has it ever happened where someone was a power of attorney and someone else was the executor? Yes, it's very common, especially with the healthcare power of attorney, because you may have one family member that you would want to be involved with medical decisions. Maybe someone in the family is a nurse or a doctor or they work in healthcare, and so you really want them to be the ones talking to the doctor, but you may not want them to be the one running the checkbook. So you might have a different person as your POA during your life, you might have a different person as your financial POA than your healthcare POA. And you might have a different individual as executor because you might want someone whose really sole qualification is that they are impartial. They're not going to choose sides. They're going to follow the letter of what you write down. There's no discretion. They just follow the rules. That might be a great person for the executor versus someone acting as a power of attorney. You know, that, may not, that might not be the same person. They might not be best at that role. For most people that I work with, they do have the same people. It's usually whichever child is the most responsible or the oldest or however they pick that person. They're the POA, they're the executor, they're the trustee if that's part of their plan. But I try to tell clients that you need to pick the best person for each role because each of these roles is different. Your healthcare POA has different responsibilities than your executor. And if the same person is best for all of them, well, great, name the same person. Um, but don't limit yourself by... Um, saying, well, if he's my executor, I have to make him the POA. The main thing is that you've made it clear in the documents how these roles relate to each other. So, for example, in our healthcare POAs that I provide, and I think pretty much every healthcare POA you see will have this provision that they are independent, except that you've made it a rule that your durable power of attorney, so the person in charge of your checkbook, they are required to pay for the medical care that your healthcare power of attorney selects. So okay. if you have different people in those positions, you wouldn't want the durable POA to have a de facto veto on your health care by saying, well, I'm not going to pay if you send them to oh, yeah. UNC hospitals. So you want to have a rule in there that says, whatever my health care POA says I need as far as treatment, my financial POA is going to pay for it. And so you've taken out that potential headbutting moment of, I'm going to use my authority as financial POA to veto your health care decision. Right, because that could get into that whole, um, you know, the inheritance thing. Like, how much am I going to take from my estate? Now, all of a sudden, you want to, you want them to get yep. all this extra care, and they're going to take money out of what I'm supposed to get, and like, yeah. Yeah, and that's very common, and you'll also see that with um, lifetime gifts of things that don't have a great deal of investment value. So it's not like the house or the bank account. 
it's, you know, dad's guitar that he's had for 20 years and he always told me I was going to get it and then something happens to dad and someone else in the family says, oh no, he gave that to me right before he died. He just said I could have it. Well, legally, if that's true, a lifetime gift means it never goes to the estate. So even if the will says you get the guitar, if he gave it away during his lifetime, that takes priority over that. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, the question is, how do you prove that? And we see a lot of litigation in our firm that comes down to sort of the more mundane things like that. Um, you know, someone cleaned out mom and dad's house and claims that most of it was stuff that was giving to them during their lifetime. Well, how do you prove that? Right. Um, and so we can do the best job we can in making this all very clear in the will. But again, if someone acting either on their own or through a POA starts making these gifts or claiming that these gifts were made, um, that's when you do have some conflict between the executor who's trying to do their job and follow the will and the POA or any other family member who was helping them out during their life who may honestly be able to claim, like, no, I was there every day. They told me I could have this. From their point of view, it seems perfectly reasonable. Right, because then you run into that situation where, like, I, um, you know, maybe for maybe I hadn't checked my will in the last five years, and I don't remember putting in the will that this person got that. And now, sometime a couple of years before I pass, I'm saying, you know what, I really appreciate it. if you would take this. I think you would really, you know, respect it and, and care for it and stuff like that. But now that now there's a discrepancy there between like what you thought five years ago and had in your will and you hadn't checked compared to the person that you gave mm -hmm. it to while they're still alive. Yeah, and that's why I try to tell people not to put every single little item in their house as an itemized line in their will because the chances are you may not have that when you pass away. You may decide to give it away. You may change it out for something else. But if you put it in your will, you've created an expectation there that the person you named thinks, I'm going to get this. I'm entitled to it. They're going to see it in the will. And even if you explain to them that, well, it was given away ahead of time or it was no longer in their possession, once they've seen it in the will, you, you, it's hard to take that out of their mind now that, you know, mom or dad wanted me to have this and I'm not getting it. Right. So Yeah, you're, you're causing a lot of headache there real quick, you know. Yeah. And, like, it's already, a, it's already a challenge anyways, you know, if, you're, if um, you're trying to figure out who gets what or, like, you know, um, how it's all distributed and then you have the emotional aspects of the loss and all that on top of it. So I can see where as much as you can kind of really get down to the details and making sure you're covered um, is very important. Yeah, I had a good question someone asked me yesterday because um, I was going to dinner with some family members and they could tell that I was not really engaged in the dinner conversations. They asked me what was going on and I said I had a very emotional meeting with a client who was having trouble, you know, keeping it together. She was doing her estate plan and she was sort of realizing all these things that she'd done wrong leading up to this point that she hadn't had a plan together, that her kids didn't get along. And so she told me the story for about an hour of how, you know, she was really struggling because she knew that no matter what she did, there was going to be some conflict, you know, if something happened to her. And someone at the table asked me, well, do you actually need to know that? I mean, you're the attorney drafting the will. Don't you just need to know who gets what, who's the executor and any terms or conditions? And, you know, aren't they just using you as a therapist? You know, do you really need to hear all that emotional stuff? And my answer to that really was that the reason I need to hear it is because I need to know what to say to this person in order to advise them correctly. So if I'm advising them 
either name joint executors or don't, or have this person involved in your estate or not, and that goes against what they naturally want to do, I need to know how to get that point across to them. And really, you can't do that unless you know their story. If you know why they're trying to name all the kids joint because they don't want them to fight, you have to be able to get the point across to them that that might not stop any fighting. That's just going to deadlock your estate for years because they're not going to agree on anything. Um, but unless you know what they've been through, how they've gotten to this point, you don't know what to say to them to try and convince them that this really is the best plan, this is the way you should go. And at the end of the day, it's still their decision. So if they tell me this is what I want in my will, even if I think it's a bad idea, I have to follow their instructions. But I can at least advise them based on what I know about them, what I know about the law, and my experience with other clients, I can say this is what I would recommend. And I really can't make that case to them unless I know what's gone on with them to this point. So it's not a technical legal matter, it's more about how do you convince people to do what you think is in their best interest. And unless you know what's gotten them to this point, you don't know how to make that case to them. Right, because you have to take your experience of past cases, you know, mixed with their story and mixed with the law and mixed with like, you know, what's all actually happening together and, and, and then give them the best advice from there, you know. And then I can see that where, you know, even if, you know, that I think it comes down to that you can lead the, lead the horse to water kind mm -hmm. of thing where, you know, like, I've done everything I can to make sure that you have the best advice going forward, and then now you have to still make your decision. And if they still make that decision that they still want to change it, then I mean you're kind of I mean you're kind of up in the air on that one, aren't you? Like, yeah, and the thing is, we're always talking about things that might happen. I mean, the certainty here is at some point you will have an estate. That's the certain part. All the variables leading up to that. Some things we're more sure of, like it's more likely than not that your kids will survive you. It's more likely than not that your first choice for executor will still be around. But my role in the estate plan usually is to try and get people to think about the low probability events that would still have a high impact on them and their family if they happen. So it's low probability that none of your kids would survive you. But if that happens and you haven't named anyone else in your will, now you've basically undone most of the work you did by putting a will together. You've thrown it back open to, you know, intestacy and the default rules of the state. You know, if your first executor decides that, you know what, I just don't want to be your executor. I don't have to do it. I don't want to do it. So I'm not going to do it. And you don't name an alternate. Well, again, now you've thrown it back open to who in the family wants to volunteer and step forward. So a lot of times my role in the estate plan is to get people to think about these things that they either don't want to think about, no one wants to think about a child predeceasing them, or these things that are rare, not likely to happen, but the benefit of having practice for several years in this area is you start to see the low probability events. Because as an attorney, I probably see an outsized percentage of those because those are the ones that people come to you for help with. You know. Everything's going great. Everything goes to one child. They get it all by beneficiary designation. They're not going to come to an attorney to talk about that. They just file the paperwork and get it done, usually. Um, if something's gone wrong because something happened that no one ever thought would happen, that's the case that ends up on your desk. So you see enough of those. It helps you try and get clients to think about, look, here's something. Maybe there's only a 5% chance it could happen, but let's plan for it. Um, because if it does happen, it's going to cause a lot of grief for everyone that comes after you. Yeah, I can totally see that. You know, and I think we talked one time about, you know, 
having a, the the children pass before you know the the person that took that has the will you know i'm sure that's a really challenging thing for anybody to even think about or like even process that thought yeah that's probably the number 3 situation we talked about the two most difficult situations that i run into one is you know family members just died you know mom dad just passed away two is diminished capacity can we make this will or not three is when you have to do estate planning for someone when you have to replace one of their beneficiaries. I had that situation this year. I had done someone's will less than a year ago, and then they you know, called in one day and said, I need to redo my will. And I said, oh, why, what's going on? He's like, well, my son just died, and he was my beneficiary. Well, that's gonna be a much more difficult conversation to have with someone than if they're just thinking you know, proactively of, well, what happens if my son were to pass away? I'll build in this default plan. Once it actually happens, it completely changes your thinking, and you know it's a more difficult conversation to have, but also one that people all you know they need to have it because you much rather have a plan set up ahead of time so that if something were to happen, you're comfortable with you know the alternate choice. What's the new plan now? Versus this person had to completely rethink of it on the fly. They hadn't really named any alternate for their son because they never thought. You know, what are the chances something's going to happen to my son before me? Right. And so there was no plan in place for if that happened. And so once it did happen, they had to go through this whole process again, and they had to think about it, you know, while those emotions were still fresh and raw for them. And, you know, you want to tell that person, well, take some time, you know, come in when you're ready. But at the same time, there's this hole in your estate plan now, so you also need to come in and get it taken care of as soon as you can because you don't want this thing to drag on for years. You never make a decision and then something happens and the estate plan doesn't go at all the way that you want it to or the way you thought it would. Right, because you just have this like this giant hole in it that you never actually handled, you know. And I, I can understand the emotional aspects of it. I haven't really lost anybody close to me, but um, I've almost lost my dad numerous times and like that, that feeling of like, oh my God, like this is, this, you know, things get very real very quick, mm-hmm. you know. So I can see where the emotional piece would like keep like, create this hesitation to like want to want to handle or, or fix it up but we still have to make sure we're, we're taking care of the loopholes and the, the, tying the pieces back together yeah some people really can't get over that hurdle it's very rare but I have met with clients who we've talked about the will we've talked about their estate plan and we get to that question of who's your alternate beneficiary you know who's your contingent plan what if something happens to your kids and they can't continue the conversation they can't make a decision and so they just walk away from the process and don't even do a will because they can't face that hurdle of you know what happens in this situation and so it's not it's not often that I see that but it does happen to where people for whatever reason they just they can't cross that emotional hurdle and they can't even think that that might be a possibility and again it puts them at a disadvantage because they're right, it's a low probability event, but if it prevents you from making any plan at all, you've made this process much harder on your family than it needed to be. Well, um, going in the future, I yeah. mean, yeah, if you haven't set anything up because you couldn't cross one, you couldn't get past that one decision, mm-hmm. now you just, like, you could lock up everything for, for years, yeah. you know, because you didn't, you couldn't make the one, you couldn't get past that one situation. Mm-hmm. So... Well, very good. Um, I appreciate you here. Uh, I think it was an amazing conversation. I look forward to having more with you. Yeah, thank um, it's you. A great, it's a great topic, and I think a lot of people really need to kind of hear maybe the information that they're like, like, 
you see all the time that they may not feel courageous enough or brave enough to like face it, but know it needs to happen. So hopefully this will give them some insight that they can go in there with. So um, you can tell people where to find you. Yeah, so I work with Bagwell Holton Smith. It's a law firm here in the Triangle. We have three locations. Um, two of them are in Chapel Hill. We have one on the Durham side and one on the Chatham County side in Southern Village. We have an office in Morrisville, so that's my Wake County location. And the best way to get up with me is to either give us a call at our main office. Uh, the number is 919-401-0062. Uh, the best way to reach me individually, if anyone has questions or just wants to talk about you know anything that we've touched on, is to give me uh, an email. Email address is jspain at bhspa.com. Stands for Bagwell Holtsmith PA.com. And yeah, please reach out, and I'd love to continue the conversation further with you on other topics because um, there's a lot of areas that are tangentially related to estate planning, and you end up seeing a lot of situations where the estate is really just the start of the client's um, question and the client's problem. And, you know, there's a lot of different areas we can go with this. So, yeah, love to come back and talk with you more in the future. Excellent. Sounds good. All right, guys. Well, uh, I'll catch you guys soon on another episode, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Take care. Thank you again for taking the time to listen. I look forward to sharing more with you on future episodes. If you need to contact me, you can reach me at anothernewperspective101 at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Have an awesome day.